0: Well, hello friends, a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. If you're joining us for the first time, you probably picked a really weird week, but that's okay. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, We are landing a series uh, that we've run called What is the Bible? And as I've said each week, it's some of the most critical information we've ever explored as a community because what I'm trying to do over six weeks is give you um, an admittedly not perfect orientation to the Bible. Um, And as we've also said, if you've ever tried to read the Bible for yourself, there's probably parts that you sailed right through, and there were some other parts you got to, and you just thought, I have no idea what to do with this, or what this has to do with me. And as, again, we've said all along, uh, the foundational idea behind this series goes like this. Uh, Though the Bible looks like a book, it doesn't exactly read like a book because it's not really a book. When you got your Bible, it was handed to you and it was all bound together in duotone leather, whatever that is, right? And it had a table of contents and it had maps and for all the world, it looked like a single book. But in fact, if you dig a little bit beneath the surface, you realize it's not really a book, it's a collection of books. It's actually a collection of 66 books by around 40 authors, written over 1,500 years of time on three continents in three different languages. It is singularly unique as it sits on your shelf. Uh, The authors of the 66 books were real people living in real places, in real times, with real struggles under real cultural conditions, religious conditions, sometimes persecuted conditions. And so the world in which the authors wrote profoundly affected the way they told their stories. And perhaps nowhere is that more evident than in our conversation today. Because today, as I told you at the end of last week, we get to explore the last book in the Bible. It's called Revelation. And it's a unique piece of literature among the 66 books in the Bible. It's a category of a literature in the ancient world called apocalyptic literature. And there's some different characteristics that are common between Revelation and other sorts of literature. But, but if you've ever tried to read Revelation, you know it's really different, right? Right? Uh, I had a friend email me recently and he said he's been reading through the Bible the New Testament, especially, and he got to Revelation and he's just like, I have no idea what to do with Revelation. And so his email actually sparked today's conversation about, with a whole bunch of other of you, a whole bunch of you. But I once heard a famous pastor named John Ortberg, uh, who was at Willow Creek Community Church at the time. Now he's at Menlo Park Presbyterian out in California. He said this about Revelation He said, The only thing stranger than the imagery in Revelation is what pastors have done to explain the imagery in Revelation. And I just thought, oh, I'm so guilty of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, here's kind of a representative passage. If you're unfamiliar with Revelation, let me show you why this is a very unique piece of literature in the Bible. Check out this passage. Again, word for word here from the NIV. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And some of you already checked out. You're like, what? The dra-? And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. Apparently a couple of the beasts didn't get as many crowns as the others. That's okay. And on each head was a blasphemous name. Continues. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Okay. He continues. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed The beast, And so it's fair for all of us 2,000 years later to kind of raise our hand and go, excuse me, what exactly is going on? We've got beasts, we've got dragons. Well, Christians have read passages like this for generations and tried to grasp what it means. And they tend to approach the passage in one of two ways. They either read it as something that hasn't happened yet, and then they look at the characters in our world and try to figure out who's the dragon and who's the beast, Or they read it literally, as in hyper-literally, and then if that's your persuasion, you might end up with a picture like this that I found on the internet, which is awesome. Look at that. That, friends, is a beast with seven heads, right? It looks like somebody threw Star Wars and Harry Potter and Stranger Things into a Vitamix and just shook it up, and then that that came out. And aside from the obvious biological impossibilities of this creature, it's just weird. And so what I want to do with our time today is argue that there is a third way to read Revelation. And it's a way that not only helps us understand what's going on in the letter, but it also inspires us to hope, even in the darkest moments of our lives. What I want to do is I want to explore Revelation like we have the rest of the Bible. And before we ask what it might mean for us and our future, I want to explore what it meant to the first people who read it. Because I think as you'll see, when they heard about a beast with seven heads coming out of the sea, they didn't think of a literal beast coming out of the sea. Well, to show you what I mean and to get us going, I need to give you a bit of background on the times during which Revelation was written. Like much of the New Testament, the book of Revelation was originally a letter. It was written by one of Jesus' first followers, a man by the name of John. John was the youngest of Jesus' original 12 disciples, and he lived longer than the other 12. We believe that this was written sometime in the late 80s to mid-90s AD. And by the way, this is the same John who wrote the account we have in the New Testament called the Gospel of John, the account of Jesus' life. He also wrote three small letters— uncreatively titled first, second, and third John. So there you go. Uh, But decades after the resurrection of Jesus, John ends up in a place called Asia Minor. I brought a map to kind of orient you. You see the Mediterranean rim. Israel is over here. uh, And Ephesus would have been the leading city in Asia minor, Minor and sort of the epicenter from which John did his ministry. John was serving at the end of the first century a group of seven churches. And, and so originally, Revelation was a letter addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor that were all sort of pastored, directly or indirectly, by John. You see this very clearly in the opening lines of Revelation. Here's what John writes. He says, John, identifying himself as the author, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So this, again, was originally a letter. And of these seven churches, Ephesus was their leading city. Uh, Ephesus was also the fourth largest city in the world. If you ever happen to be in Turkey, one of the places you will probably stop on either your cruise or land journey is Ephesus. Here's a picture uh, of some ruins at Ephesus. It was a major, major city in the ancient world. It had a vibrant harbor. It was a center for world trade. It was a city of commerce. It was a city of culture. Think like the New York City of the first century. And towards the end of that century, the congregations under John's care in and around Ephesus We're facing incredibly challenging times. You see, towards the end of the first century, it was hard to be a follower of Jesus. The Roman Empire had conquered the world by marching into new territory and demanding that people confess three words. Caesar is Lord. So they would roll in with their armies to a new territory And they would basically say, you have a choice to make. Either you will bow and acknowledge that Caesar or the Roman Emperor is Lord or boss of your life, or we're going to conquer you anyway. So you really didn't have much of a choice. If you did submit, you became citizens of the Roman Empire. And if you resisted, you often found yourself hanging on a cross to show everyone what happened when you crossed the Roman Empire. Well, Romans believed that military conquest was the path to worldwide peace. They called it the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. There was even a line of Roman propaganda that shows us how deeply they believed this. Here's here's what historians tell us that Rome would push out uh, on coins and other things. They would say, Caesar, or the Roman emperor, is the son of God, sent to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. Some of you already have lights on your dashboard flashing. That's excellent. Stay with me, right? Uh, Of course, it didn't feel like peace and prosperity to people who had been conquered and crucified. To them, it felt awful and oppressive and evil. And it was in this world that a community in Ephesus and some communities around were gathering around the teachings of Jesus. And we just need to acknowledge at this point that they had a very different vision for the world. They believed, not that Caesar was Lord, but that Jesus was Lord. And they were part of a resistance movement rooted in the conviction that this world isn't made better by military conquest. It's made better by compassion and sacrificial love. In other words, they saw Jesus as the anti-Caesar or they saw Caesar as the anti-Jesus. And this perspective put them on a collision course with the Roman emperor. Now the Caesar in power, when John wrote revelation was a man named domitian and domitian ruled the roman empire from 81 to 96 ad and he was a really 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 bad dude uh, by way of example he demanded that his wife refer to him as my lord and my god so you like him already <laughs> i suspect that at times his marriage may have struggled i'm just saying right He began his official correspondence, your Lord and God commands you. He demanded that people worship him, and if people would not worship him, they would be punished by death. This was life under the rule of Domitian. Uh, Fascinatingly, um, kind of an interesting and relevant historical footnote for us, Domitian's father was a guy named Vespasian who had served as emperor prior to him. Vespasian had received what should have been a fatal head wound during the siege of the city of Jerusalem in Israel in 70 AD. And a few of you just had a light go off on your dashboard, did you not? Right? He was one who had received a fatal head wound that had been miraculously healed. So Domitian comes to power and begins to exert his influence on the Roman world. He even reinstates the Olympic Games at the time, which had fallen out of practice and renames them after himself. He called them the Domitian Games. And what's fascinating is historians have preserved sort of the order of service to those early Domitian Games. They tell us that they would begin by Domitian addressing the leaders of the various Roman provinces who had brought athletes to compete in the Olympic arenas. And he would praise them for what they're doing well. He'd say, you know, you are doing this very well. And then he would challenge them. He would say, but I have this against you. You need to fix these problems. And sort of the implication was, or else. And then after he addressed the leaders of the provinces, the tens of thousands of spectators who would gather would basically worship Domitian. They were led in worship by 24 priests who were dressed in white and who were wearing gold crowns. Across the front of the crowns were the divine titles of Domitian. Just for fun, here are a few of the things the crowds would proclaim to Domitian as they worshipped him. He said, Great are you, Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive power and honor and glory. Lord of lords, highest of the high, God of all things, Savior of eternity, most humble individual in all of creation. I made that last one up, right? That's kind of not the the vibe. Actually, Tim, can we go back to the slide real quick? There's one more thing I wanted to show you about this picture. Uh, Domitian here is holding a scroll. And his statues often depicted him holding a scroll, symbolizing the idea that he alone was worthy to open the scroll. And he alone was worthy to rule human history. So that's Domitian in Rome. His story intersects powerfully with the story of the Ephesian Christians In the mid-80s, because in the mid-80s, the city council of Ephesus voted to become the world headquarters for the worship of Domitian. They built him a massive temple in order to honor him and also in order to gain benefit from him. You see, if you were the headquarters for the worship of the Roman emperor who was on the throne, there were some perks. And so they built him a massive, massive temple. And if you visit Ephesus today, you can stand in the ruins of this temple. Uh, It was a humble structure, not really, uh, consisting of a platform held up by 35 foot high columns on which, and this was a bit unique, were carved images of the 24 Greek gods and goddesses in the Greco-Roman pantheon. And then on top of the platform, standing on top of all of the other gods of the Greeks and Romans, stood a not-so-subtle 27-foot-tall statue of Domitian who watched over the city. And so whether you entered Ephesus by boat in the harbor or by land, the first thing that you would see greeting you to the city of Ephesus was Domitian. There's also a museum in the city of Ephesus where they've found the head and the arm of this statue on top. Here it is with a short person that's there, just to give you an idea of the size and the scope. And apparently he had a tragic nose issue. I'm not sure what was going on there, but it was kind of rough, right? But the temple was constructed in a way to convey that Domitian was the culmination of all deity. He was the final Lord of heaven and earth. He was the God of gods. And so for all this acclaim and power and authority, Domitian found acclamation from almost everywhere in the world. But for all of this acclamation, Domitian had a problem. Because followers of Jesus refused to bow to him. And this made him furious. There's a historian by the name of Ethelbert Stoffer, And if you're pregnant right now looking for a good boy named Ethelbert, put that on the list, right? <laughs> He wrote a book called Christ and the Caesars. And in this book, he notes something really fascinating about Domitian and Jesus. He says, Domitian was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement was an enigmatic figure, that would be Jesus, that threatened his glory. And so Domitian was the first to declare war on this figure. And not surprisingly, especially for Christians living in the headquarters for Domitian worship, this complicated life dramatically. By way of example, I brought a picture of the market in the city of Ephesus. It was called the Agora. It was the size of two football fields. Ladies, there would have been a gap right about there, right? Um, But this was, again, a world center for trade. You could buy anything in the markets of Ephesus. It was the epicenter of the city's economy. And just imagine with me that in the first century, you're a farmer who has joined the Jesus movement And when you take your cucumbers to market, you learn that the rules to buy and sell have changed, that Domitian is cracking down on followers of Jesus. And so you must first offer incense on an altar to Domitian as an act of worship before entering the market. And after you do, you will receive an ink stain on your right hand to prove that you had done this. So you have to ask yourself the question, if you're a first century follower of Jesus, will you? Offer incense. And before you quickly say no, understand that if you don't offer incense, you will not be allowed to sell your cucumbers, and consequently, your family may struggle to eat. Now, as we've noted, Domitian claimed to be a god, and the Jews said that anyone demanding worship was working for the devil or the dragon. And the word they used in apocalyptic literature for people who demanded to be worshiped was a beast. And so the question, if you're a follower of Jesus in first century Ephesus, is whether or not you will take the mark of the beast. And some of you are thinking, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that before? Right? I'm so glad you asked, right? Because this image shows up midway through John's letter to his people in Revelation 13, verse 16. Here's what John writes. He, speaking of this enigmatic evil figure, this beast, also forced all people great and small rich and poor free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark now at this point two things should be very very clear and if you're with me tracking so far this is where we're at number 1 John's original audience knew exactly what he was talking about and number 2 John's people were facing challenges that we can only begin to imagine. Now, this is far from the only cultural connection that helps us read Revelation. John begins the letter of Revelation with Jesus specifically addressing each of the seven churches in the region again, region, again, the churches that John served as pastor. And he does so in the same way that Caesar would begin his Domitian games. First, there's a praise. And then there's a challenge. First, there's a word of encouragement. And then there's a word, perhaps even of correction. Here's an example from Revelation chapter two. John writes, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So this is again, Jesus talking to the church. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Like, I get it. It's hard to be you and it's hard to be my follower living in the situation that you're in. He says, yet I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. You've experienced drift. And you got to wonder if a few of them had fallen into compromise. If they had said, okay, you know, I I guess we'll take the mark. We don't really believe Domitian is God. Domitian is a guy, and he's kind of obnoxious. So is it that big a deal for us just to bend the knee? Does it really, does it really in the end matter? And Jesus pushes back and says, no, it It does, it does matter. You've forsaken your first love. So John intentionally borrows from his culture to make his point. And it's subtle at first, but I think John would want his people to see Domitian for what he is. He's a deceiver who stands in opposition to God. Now as John continues to write and Revelation continues to unfold, things get substantially less subtle. Check out, this vision that John has of the throne room in heaven. John writes, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Where have we heard that before? And seated on them were 24 elders. So John has this vision of ultimate reality. You want to know who's on the throne of the universe? John's about to tell us. Here's what he says. He says the the priests that were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And and again, at this point, John's people could see exactly what he was doing. He was pointing them past their present struggles with Domitian to the ultimate reality and who is seated on the throne of the universe. Here's what he says as he continues. He says... Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne. So there's a big worship concert going on. And who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Next slide. He said, They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You are worthy. And as he continues, we see who the you is. He continues, he says, Then John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And again, who always has the scroll? The emperor has the scroll. John's like, emperor doesn't have the scroll. He says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy? to break the seals and open the scroll. And in the first century in Ephesus, if you believe the propaganda, Domitian alone was the one who could break the seals and rule the world. Here's what he says. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. And we miss it 2,000 years later. They knew exactly who John was talking about. John was pointing to Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David, and he's triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So he he points and he says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah continues. Then I saw, not a lion, but check this out. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and elders. Look, the Lion of Judah, John, turns and it's, it's a lamb and immediately his audience could see exactly what was going on. The only one worthy to rule is the lamb who was slain. Jesus, the lamb of God who gave up his life for the sins of the world. And they begin to sing. He they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And John points them back to the gospel, the good news of what Jesus came to do to make peace between them and God by his blood shed on the cross to point back to the new covenant that Jesus institutes in his blood, when his blood flows and forgiveness is offered to the world. And, and John says, okay, it's not Domitian who's on the throne of the universe. Don't bow to Domitian. He's the deceiver and he, he's, he himself is deceived. He points them to the ultimate reality. He points them to the only one who's worthy of worship. It's almost like John wants to say to these people who, again, he loves and he knows. Hey, I know how it feels right now. I know how it feels, but I need to remind you of what is true, ultimately true. Domitian's power is temporary and it's passing. It can't endure. He seems strong now, but just wait because there's someone who is way, way stronger. And so John tells his people, don't bow, don't compromise in times of trial. He tells them, hold on to hope because hope changes everything. It's amazing when you find yourself in a dark situation in this life, whether it's relational, whether it's financial, whether it's with regards to your health, a little hope goes a long way, doesn't it? Just to be reminded that in the end, it's going to be okay that the trials and the troubles of this life are fleeting and passing. And John says, listen, look past Domitian. Look past the financial collapse. Look past the collapse in your health. Listen, in the end, it's going to be okay because Jesus won. We don't feel it yet, but he's on the throne and it's going to be okay. And and, and so John continues to write and there's more images that flow to these people And then right near the end of Revelation, he comes to a passage that I have read at every single funeral I have ever done because of the hope that it creates in the hearts of all of us when we're reminded of the brokenness of our world. Here's what John writes. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Like he's pointing them way forward. He says, to the day when everything's going to be made right, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It's the wedding of the ages. He's not done yet, he says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You think Domitian's a big deal? You ain't seen nothing yet. And I know English majors ain't, isn't a word. I know, right? Yeah, you stay tuned. It gets better. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And this next line just brings, he who is seated on the throne said, and this is a word for any of us who's traveling right now through a stretch of life that we wish more than anything we weren't. I am making everything new. I am making everything new. The world we live in is broken. Yes, the world we live in is so off script from what God intended. Yes. But in Jesus, there's a new covenant and there's a new hope and there's a new future and there's a new story. And John says, hold on. Hold on to hope because hope is changes everything. Friends, the first people who heard these words wept. They knew exactly what John was doing when he used the images he did to describe the one true God. In my preparation for today, I came upon something really funny. A pastor wrote, he said, no one in Revelation, no one who heard the words of Revelation for the first time thought, boy, we should really write some novels. (laughs) He said, it's so much better than that. These were real people in a real place, in a real time, looking for real hope. And so, John is a poet, and in his letter, Revelation, good and evil are in conflict, cosmically in conflict. John says there's actually evil in the world. It isn't abstract, it's real, and it torments people in a number of ways. And so, John uses strong language to portray this evil as the destructive reality it is. He intentionally subverts the theater and propaganda of the Roman Empire to basically tell his people, don't fall for the lie there's a better way. John knows that in Jesus, God has dealt decisively with evil, and that even in the darkest of circumstances, Jesus can be trusted. It was a powerful, incredible, unstoppable message of hope. It is a powerful, incredible, unstoppable message of hope written by a real pastor living in a real place at a real time under a real government, writing to real people in his real church with real struggles. And in his letter, John calls out the injustice of his world and condemns systemic evil. And he encourages his people not to lose heart because in the end, Jesus is on the throne. And in the end, everything will be made right? This was the hope that changed everything for them, and this is the hope that can change everything for you and for me. As a quick PS, um, as best as historians can tell these things, you say, well, what happened after these churches received the letter? What happened after they received the encouragement not to bow, not to bend, not to give up? Friends, in the decades that follow, the city of Ephesus 85 to 90% of the city of Ephesus was proclaiming faith in Jesus. In the city that had been the world headquarters for the worship of the Roman emperor, a small group of Jesus followers with an incredibly disruptive and beautiful and compelling and captivating message changed their world. Hope changes everything. Would you stand? And I'll close us in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we live in a world that is not the way it was supposed to be. Sin has taken root in our lives. Sin has taken root in our world. And we all travel through stretches where life is hard and we don't understand and, and in those moments i pray that we would be reminded of who is on the throne we would be reminded that our story is not over and that in that memory we might feel hope rise hope that comes as a result of the fact that in jesus you've adopted us as your children hope that results from the rea- or that rises from the reality that you love us even when we are not lovable. Hope that you are good, even in a world that is not. Hope that one day, everything will be made right. And so this morning in this place, I pray for friends that are traveling through a place where hope needs to rise. I pray that you give them clear vision to look beyond their present circumstance. And to place their hope in what is coming in the day when everything will be made new. And so we bless you, we praise you, we celebrate you, we thank you for sending us your one and only son to do what only he could do. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Everyone said amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.